0: Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that usually walks through Dante's matchwork comedy, but in this episode, we're not walking. Instead, I've been saving this back and saving this back and saving this back until now when I feel like it's very important to bring it up. Trust me, I actually had this podcast episode written out back in Inferno, but I kept delaying till what I thought was the right moment to drop this interpolated episode that is about a literary theoretical problem in comedy. What we're going to talk about is the notion of Dante the Pilgrim versus Dante the Poet. And this is a very big question. We have talked about it endlessly, but we have, in essence, danced around it. So now I want to kind of, oh, I don't know, push your patience just a little bit and talk it through fully so we understand the complexity of this problem. Let me start with my thesis. The Pilgrim-Poet Dichotomy, the Pilgrim-Poet Split, is a convenient fiction to help us come to terms with a polyvalent or multivocal poem. Let me just stop and explain what I mean. What I mean by convenient fiction is that it's something that we use and it proves useful in the further interpretation of this very complicated poem, but we're still running up against, and we'll come back to this, the notion that the poem Has more than one voice in it. We see the poem. We read it on the page. We know that it has more than one voice in it. We'll talk more about this in a minute. And so we call those voices Dante the Pilgrim and Dante the Poet. But in the end, it's all the poet. In the end, every line is made up by the poet. You know, there's that thing we've talked about that uh, Singleton's comment that the fiction the supreme fiction of comedy is that it is no fiction that the, ultimately Dante wants to prove to you that he really did do this even though we know and in fact his readers in 1300 probably knew well 1320 probably knew that he didn't in fact ever do this and there's a corollary to this Uh, thesis about the supreme fiction of comedies that is no fiction, proposed by Barolini at Columbia, and that is the narrative strategy for comedy is that there is no strategy. In other words, this thing is constructed, we know it's constructed because we can see the filament lines of the construction and the stress fractures running in every direction. This thing is constructed, but it's constructed in such a way that you're supposed to believe it's not constructed, that, oh, these are just the things I saw. I walked across the known universe and look, look at all the things I saw. And I'm just reporting what I saw back to you. So the narrative strategy is that there is no strategy. We see all of that and we know that there's more than one voice speaking or more than one tonality or more than one tone register. Or if your musician has this, there's more than one key. There's a, I don't know, let's say there's a D minor part of this. And there's a B flat major part of this. And so we know that they're kind of related keys, but we also know that they're playing at the same time and they cause some dissonances and we can hear the D minor strain and we can hear the B flat major strain. And so we label these Pilgrim and Poet, but that's not true. Let me explain that. Nowhere in the poem do we actually have a division of pilgrim and poet. Nowhere in the poem. (laughs) Poem. does the poet step out and say, okay, now I'm the poet. And so let me talk to you straight on. And now back to the pilgrim, Dante, walking across the universe, right? We never get this. And in fact, the terms pilgrim and poet, while used inside of comedy are not necessarily used to describe the various characters we ascribe to Dante. We do get in moments in which we see the voices. Remember way back at the opening lines of comedy in Inferno 1. We had that bit about, I woke up in a dark wood for the straightway was lost. We had that whole bit. And then we had that line six of Inferno One, the very thought of it renews my fear. And we said right there early on, look, this is the poet writing at his desk. This is not the pilgrim who woke up in the wood. The very thought of it renews my fear is this brief glimpse of the poet at his desk. Well, yes and no. The whole thing from the opening line in the middle of our life, I woke up in a dark wood from the Right, get go. The whole thing is the poet. But we kind of make this division because we see these multiple temporal states a pilgrim in a wood, and somebody in the future who's looking back on that, whose fear is renewed. Notice the multi temporality of that. And in order to figure it out in our very linear brains, we create the fiction. Of a pilgrim and a poet, a fiction that's not actually in the poem, but it's convenient, it's useful. There are moments when Dante the Pilgrim is the intended audience of the poet's work, and this is where it starts to get complicated. For example, when we get to the Malabolja of the Thieves, remember them with all their metamorphoses and somebody the poet we said but it's all the poet but still the poet we said steps out and say you know ah, oh, well lucan and ovid never did anything like this this whole scene is set up so, that it's got a kind of poetic pyrotechnics behind it, these metamorphoses of the thieves with the serpents and with each other. And the intended audience, the person who is supposed to wonder at these metamorphoses, is Dante. <laughs> Is the pilgrim. It's an incredibly circular craziness that's going on there. If you just think about it, the poet is writing these sequences that cause the pilgrim to marvel at the poetic... <laughs> mastery of the text that we get these moments in which Dante the poet seems to be writing for himself (laughs) trying to prove to himself that he can do it and in order to make sense of the circularity that's going on right there again we create the pilgrim poet divide but there's more to it than that and in fact it bears on this passage. It comes up with Sordelo. This is a huge problem in the text and one that we should talk just a little bit about. Where does Sordelo fit in ante-purgatory or the parts of purgatory before the gate? Did he die violently? I don't know. Is he somebody who's lazy and didn't repent in time? I don't know. Is he somebody who was excommunicated? Well, I don't know, but probably not. We don't have any record of it. Where does he fit? amongst all these people sitting out in ante-purgatory. I mean, where he's placed, we're supposed to believe he's among those who died violent deaths, but he's about to lead them to another place, which are not necessarily people who died violent deaths, although some of them will have, but not necessarily. He leads them to another place, which means he's not easily categorized. They meet this uncategorized figure, Sordello, who's not easily slipped into a slot, as most people are across comedy. And this figure then causes the poet to become very present in the poem. We have that moment when the poet seems to step out and say, oh, Lombard soul, so haughty and honorable, and then we get this huge invective we're in the middle of. We seem to have so much more of the poet that is spurred by the presence of Sordello. Now, you know, standing back from this, this is all a fabrication of the poet Dante by allowing Sordello into his text as an uncategorized figure he then is able to break the narrative flow this is getting very technical the narrative flow of comedy so that he then can step into the poem and offer his invective let me restate that by having a fellow poet who is not easily categorized among the penitents of the early parts of purgatory, by having that figure here, it allows the poet the space, the break in the traditional narrative framework of categorization and walking to break the poem then and offer all of this commentary about Italian strife. Fair enough. But behind that all, is the poet. And the poet is the one doing that. The poet is the one creating the circumstance that allows him to have the space to make the effective. So again, the pilgrim poet dichotomy is false. It's a fiction, but it is a fiction we create because we, in our brains are trying to make sense of a work that is working on multiple time frames and in then multiple voices because um, this is the high level point that really honestly is beyond this current discussion because voice is a function of time in narrative strategy voice reflects the passing of time and the temporal moment a character's voice let's say in the sound and the fury a character's voice will represent that day in the life of the character there are four chapters of the sound and the fury and three of them are narrated by Compton children and. Each one is a day and each one reflects that child's perspective, point of view. But mostly voice is a function of temporality of the passing of time and also the marker of a temporal moment. And since we have a multi-temporal poem, we have a multi-vocal poem. Oh, I know that's kind of brain torquing but just let it sit there for a minute and think about it and (laughs) I'm going to move on. Given all that I said, there are still wildly contradictory moments inside of comedy about the poet and pilgrim divide. For example, when Dante's with Brunetto Latini in Inferno 15 at lines 88 through 90, he says to Brunetto that he is writing everything down in a book so that someone later, and we presume it's Beatrice, someone later can gloss that book. Well, at that moment, the pilgrim looks like the poet. The pilgrim is engaged in the act of composing, of writing down what he sees. Now, you could claim that the difference is the pilgrim is writing down what he sees, and the poet is waiting for Beatrice's gloss. Fair enough, but I think it's a little murkier. Or, here's a another moment in which there's a contradiction and this is why I saved it for now or when the poet Dante in this invective that we're in limits himself to what he could have known in the year 1300 this makes no sense if the pilgrim poet dichotomy is hard and fast in comedy then the poet writing decades after the year 1300 has no reason to limit his perspective to Albert the first and a possible successor Henry Seventh for the Holy Roman Empire but he does in this passage and we've said oh this passage is from the poet's voice and the poet is limiting himself to the year 1300 but why why would he need to why would the poet need to limit himself to the pilgrim's point of view to use that dichotomy there's no rational explanation for that and it causes the pilgrim poet dichotomy to fall apart again This is part of having a multivalent work. Let me talk just about that for a second. Multivalent, polyvalent, multivocal, polyvocal. I keep using these terms and I'm using them interchangeably and they're not truly interchangeable, but uh, let me have... Let me have it for the sake of a podcast. We tend to value polyvalent or polyvocal works. We, people who love literature. Let me give you some examples. Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina is a distinct polyvalent work because you know if you know the book there are actually two novels in there there's Levin's story which is the story of this man who so badly wants to connect to the agricultural world and the big threshing scene with Levin out with the peasants threshing and then there's Anna and her tragic love affair and adultery and you know all that bit that goes on with Anna and kneeling down and the train rolling over at the end so there are two stories Levin's and Anna's and they're in conflict. And you know, if you've read Anna Karenina, you know that it's actually Levin's book. Levin takes up much more space in the book than Anna does. When you first read Anna Karenina, one of the things that, of course, you encounter is (laughs) you're holding, first of all, a 900-page novel in your hands. Okay, fine. But, you know, for the first 100, 120 pages, there's no Anna. And you keep thinking to yourself, (laughs) Wait, where's the title character? How come she's not on stage? Why are we with this guy? Who's this guy, Levin? And what the hell is he doing in the text? That allows the text to be multivalent or polyvocal because there are two contrasting stories that Tolstoy is setting up. Or let me give you another example of multivocal or polyvalent work, and that is the poetry of Emily Dickinson. There are poems from Dickinson that are stridently atheistic. There's a poem, I prayed at first a little girl because they told me to, but stop when qualified to guess how prayer would feel to me this poem gets extraordinarily assertive and then it moves back to what it feels like to no longer have a god take your life in his hand and hold it and to kind of be on your own in the world it ends with this fabulous line It takes me all the while to poise, and still it doesn't stay. All right, there's that Dickinson. But when you read the scope of Emily Dickinson's poetry, other poems seem to posit a god, this world is not conclusion, and others that get very traditional evangelical Protestant Christian thought— All of this is running in counter with each other and it bothers people. People try to linearize or make Dickinson smoothed out as if she thought one thing over the course of her life. The problem is we have poems from her entire life that express various points of view and are in various voices. And we even have poems in the voice of men from Dickinson, that the speaker must be male given hints in the poem. This leads to an incredibly polyvalent or multivocal set of of works called The Poetry of Emily Dickinson. And it is so troubling when you first encounter it because you can't figure out exactly where the voices lie. Or let's go to Shakespeare and the play As You Like It. This play is both ribald, funny. It plays with gender. It plays with homosexuality. It questions the political leadership of the time. And it could be seen as a slap at a monarchy that is ineffective and yet, in the end, it comes back and reestablishes society in a very traditional quote-unquote orthodox way. As you like, it is gorgeously nuanced and textured from the nihilism of the Jacques character all the way out to the ribald sex scenes that could be homosexual sex scenes if, in fact, the king has fallen for a boy, although it's a girl dressed as a boy. But still, we have a kind of wild, multivalent landscape. And it's absolutely intellectually delightful. Let me give you one more example of polyvalency and why we value it so much. It's a work that's very near and dear to my heart. It's Bach's Goldberg Variations. The Goldberg Variations are incredible, wild emotional landscapes built off the initial aria. We move all the way from very dark variations, almost um, in musical terms, suicidal variations, to very light and effervescent variations over the course of the Goldbergs. And the thing that's so interesting is the Goldbergs ends, the last variation is a quad Quadlibet is a mm, uh, light-hearted uh, medley of familiar tunes, and you have all of this really high-level sophistication of- sophisticated musical theory going on in the Goldbergs, and you end with this piece that quotes various popular songs like, uh, one is, eating only cabbage and beets has driven me from my home. I mean, it's ridiculous that this high-level musical study ends with these silly tavern songs and familiar songs of the day put in fugal or multi voiced arrangements. And that causes the whole super intellectual structure of the Goldbergs to tip. And it suddenly it seems like, wait, was this all a big joke from the beginning? Are we joking around with musical form? It, causes the ground to shift under your feet, the rug to be pulled out from under your feet. That's why we value polyvalent or multivocal works because multivalency, polyvocality, comedy, creates the space for irony. Once you play around with temporality and voicing, you allow cracks to open up, which means... That irony becomes part of the very texture of the work itself. It also involves an intellectual complexity. And if you are, and I assume if you're on this podcast journey, you are, if you are a committed literary nerd, as I am, you love the intellectual complexity of this. You love the fascination of it because, in the end, and here's the final bit polyvalent works are intellectually fun. They're curious. They leave you in a place where you have to think it through. Oh, wait till the next passage in the invective right ahead of us. They leave you in places where you have to think it through and you know that you could go on thinking about this for a very long time and never come to any final answers. I have worked with Emily Dickinson's poems since I was a PhD candidate. All the way forward in my life, I have taught seminars on Dickinson, and I still can't seem to get a grip on it. It slips away from me. Why? Because she is so adept at playing with multiple temporal sp- spaces, which means multiple voices, which means the cracks of irony, which means that I will never be able to totalize it. I will will never be able to string theory it. I will never be able to give some kind of totalizing um, equation that equals Dickinson's poetry. And that leads me to a place of absolute play like in a sandbox i know for a lot of people that leads them to frustration because they just want the answer but in polyvalent works you won't get the answer even in ones heading toward the very presence of god like comedy a lot to say (laughs) to say least. And thank you for indulging me in this high literary discourse about how the poem can and can't work and why it falls apart in certain passages. That's all important to see because in the end, it's all Dante the poet I would really appreciate a rating for this podcast. I really appreciate your support in any way that you can give it. There's a donation button for this podcast you can give through PayPal. I certainly appreciate it. Just to be dead honest, if I amateurize it out, it costs me about $120 a month in fees, in website domains, in licensing fees, in royalty fees for sound effects, in all of that, in my scholarly journal acquisition fees. And it cost me about 120 a month to run the podcast. So I appreciate any support that you can give. I would definitely appreciate a rating. But it doesn't matter. We're walking on. And in fact, we're about to step into some of the most complex irony or polyvocality or just mess that comedy could ever provide us in the next episode of Walking with Dante. So stick with me. We're on to the next bit of The Invective. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then.